This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in Melbourne's CBD. Today's big question, what is beautiful about life? We asked this question today to Anna McGann. Anna is an Australian actress and playwright. She has appeared in a number of TV shows including Underbelly Razor, House Husbands, Anzac Girls and the Dr Blake Mysteries. And she joins me now. Please welcome Anna McGann. Anna, welcome to Bigger Questions. Thank you very much. Um, so, Anna, you've worked in a few TV shows. Um, what's it like? What's it like working in TV? That's a big question. Mm. <laughs> we ask them here. It's true. <laughs> well, um, how would I describe it? It is very unglamorous. Really? Um, absolutely. You wake up at 4.30 in the morning um, and you drive out to some lesser known part of Melbourne or even further out um, and you work for 16 hours a day. That being said... It is an extraordinary job. Um, you get to work with extraordinary people making stories. Yeah. Um, and I absolutely love it. You really enjoy it? I really do. Yeah? There do are parts that are difficult. Um, like the wake up? You, you're a morning person? Or? Well, I am. Um, right. And you get used to that. You get into a strange rhythm of it. It's a little unpredictable, but um, it's fine. I think, I think the other elements that are difficult are the moment that it suddenly becomes public and you realise that it hasn't just been you and this crew and your workmates and your other storytellers for the last four and a half months, it suddenly has to be this product that needs to be sold and publicised and um, that's a completely different beast. Yeah, yeah. So do you sense that sometimes what you record is different to what you see at the end? Absolutely. Yeah? Completely. Um, And and that's part of the art of it really is that we, we give what we have um, and then the editor and the director and the producers, they mould and they carve something out of it. And so you really don't know what's going to end up on screen. And I personally find watching myself very difficult. Okay, right. <laughs> well, welcome to Bigger Questions today. To kick off Bigger Questions, we like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Today, we're asking Anna McGann about what is beautiful about life. So, Anna, I thought we'd test you on how much you know about beautiful movies. Now, do you feel qualified at all? No. No? Okay, we'll see how we go. Uh, there's two questions, both multiple choice. Right. Question one. Which film about beauty won the most number of Academy Awards? Was it A, A Beautiful Mind, B, Life is Beautiful, C, American Beauty, or D, Beauty and the Beast? So which of those won the most number of Academy Awards? Now, I'll give you a hint. They all won Academy Awards, but which one won the most? Okay. It's A or B? Uh, it's not. Oh. <laughs> That's what I would have gotten now. Okay, all right. Okay, so, all right. yeah, that narrows it down perhaps a little bit. Yeah. But, so. oh my goodness. I'm going to take a shot at D. Or? <laughs> I can, I'm happy to lose this okay, one. The, you've, okay, well, the, actual, really? the answer was C, American Beauty. Really? Yeah, it won five Oscars. The Beautiful Mind won four. Life is Beautiful three. And Beauty and the Beast, the 1991 Disney animation, won two Oscars. So do you have a favourite beautiful film? Or obviously not American Beauty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I quite, no, I quite liked that film. The one that always comes to mind is actually It's a Wonderful Life, which is not... You know, it's not in the title, but I consider that a film, a film about beauty. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, have you seen the film Life is Beautiful, though? I have not. Oh, okay. Well, this might be difficult for the second question, oh, then. Oh, here we go. <laughs> anyway, when the start... Okay, but this is... You this stitched is, me up. Oh, uh, we'll try... Sorry, we'll, try to, we'll, help you, we'll help you pass. I'm help, sure you'll be fine. 
When the star of Life is Beautiful actor Roberto Benigni won the Oscar for Best Foreign Film in 1999, what did he do that was so unusual to accept his Oscar? Did he A, jump on top of the seats as he made his way to the stage to accept his award and then jumped onto the stage? Was it B, speak no English and made his acceptance speech in untranslated Italian? Was it C, drop his Oscar and broke both the Oscar and host Sophia Loren's foot? Or was it D, walk up calmly, take the award and say, thank you, life is now beautiful, and sat down? <laughs> so which, only one of those is actually true. Which of those did actor Roberto Benigni do? There's a couple of... I was going to say, someone in this room knows the answer. There's a couple Apparently of the answer is A. And it is, oh. yes, that's right, it is. Uh, his behaviour was regarded as memorable and when he went up to collect his second Oscar for Best Actor, he said, this is a terrible mistake because I used up all my English. No, I don't know. Um, so anyway, he's, um, so Anna, perhaps you might need to watch a few more beautiful movies, but mm. you did pass. So congratulations, you got one of our two smaller questions right. Big round of applause for Anna. So what do you think then makes a film beautiful? I think it's subjective. Yeah. I don't think any one person can say, this is what makes a film beautiful. Um, and each director has his own vision in that regard mm -hmm. from the perspective of an artist that does work in it, but not necessarily as the person that directs the film or mm -hmm. writes it, though I love to do that. What I find beautiful about films that I'm at least involved in is integrity of story. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean a story that has a happy ending or a story that is necessarily even hopeful, but a story that has constructed itself in such a way that we recognise ourselves in it and is very human mm. and in a way that can hold us because when there isn't enough conflict or there isn't enough hope, it doesn't hold us. Um, and a film can feel indulgent or redundant. And um, I respond to work that mm. has such a rigorous story that nothing else can really go wrong. So what do you think is beauty then? There's a sense in which it's subjective, but what do you think it is? The word that comes to mind is honest. Um, I find something beautiful not because it is perfect um, or flawless or even aesthetically pleasing or, or warming, but it has, it has enough balance and complexity and nuance for me to, real, to, to look at it and say, you're, you're telling the truth. Mm, mm. There's a certain beauty in, as you said, the balance. Yeah. So what things then do you find beautiful? There's obviously there's a sense of integrity and honesty. What things do you look at in the world and think, that's beautiful? I work in the arts and I'm responding often to things that are from that world. The poetry community, for example, like what I'm reading or um, what I'm looking at. And that would, like, that's the first thing that comes to mind. I, when I look at poetry that I know is beautiful, mm. it often has an elegance to it. Um, it. It has a simplicity and a complexity to it. it. It's It allows both and it draws me in. And it isn't just about one person. It isn't just about the artist. It's about me. I really respond to that. Mm. Well, a question's just come in uh, from our live audience in our text line here. Ah. It says, you mentioned something is beautiful when it's telling the truth. Why is that especially beautiful, especially if the truth seems ugly? Because it is refreshing. When somebody has vulnerability or when they have honesty, even if it's really ugly, but they're willing to bear that um, or express it or you can hold it for a moment and take it in, I find it an incredibly humbling experience. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. So beautiful. Now, you mentioned that obviously you work in stage and screen with actors who often seem to be beautiful people. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Money. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
it's industry um, and you see it you see it in Hollywood I suppose a lot even in Australia a bit where where stories start to be told not because they are the true stories about us but because they're the sellable stories so they're, they're the next thing off the mark to be made they're the tentpole films that will hold up an entire production company allow little indies to get made mm-hmm. you see people writing to that vision rather than their own hearts. Um, I guess from being a young woman in the industry too and feeling the pressure to be constantly youthful and constantly beautiful, um, I have really... I mean, my nature is a little, as is a little bit of, little bit of a rebel, and so I, I got, I get quite frustrated with that. But I have, at the same time, noticed moments in time where I've bent to it, you know, and I've, and I've allowed it to get under my skin and hurt me, and may, and you, you get rejected for not being beautiful enough, for not mm. being young enough, and they, they have an aesthetic, um, and the idea is that, that level of aesthetic beauty whether it's in men or women or both um will help sell a story sell mm. a film but it's not necessarily it's in some way superficial than i suppose is it it's not really as you say honest i would say that yeah i i don't think it accurately reflects us all but more to the point i don't think that that the what we're passing down by emphasizing that again and again to generation after generation necessarily produces good fruit in any of us. Mm. Um, and you see it a bit, especially in Australian film, but and stretching out more when you see diverse people, you know, you see people of different shapes and colors and sizes and accents and ideas on screen. We, we come alive. It's fascinating and it's meaty and it's good. Mm. Um, and I think we're going in that direction, but I think we've come from an era of objectification. Mm. Now, in Underbelly Razor, the character Big Jim Devine said to the character you played, Nellie Cameron, God made you so beautiful, Nellie girl. Enjoy it while you can. So what do you make of Big Jim's perspective on beauty? It's such a strange thing thinking back to that line, and I remember that so well. And I'm, it's so funny that you found that. Um, and that was, you know, that was many, many years ago. That was probably my f- my second job on television, yeah. my first big job, and it was that line to my character, who was a 16-year-old prostitute, might I add, and he seduced her with that line, and he was the husband of the madam of the brothel that she worked at. And there's this this question of live your life, grab hold of it, you know, I'm going to offer you all these opportunities and so are other people and just make sure you dive right in. And at that point in my life, I probably had the same attitude and the industry communicated a similar sentiment. It's this idea of like you're young, you're, we've deemed you beautiful, we've called you that, um, we've, we've deemed your sexuality sellable, what are you going to do with it? Make the most of it. Yeah, 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 you go for it. Yeah. So in some ways, do you think that it's a bit, again, superficial or perhaps just transactional, that you've got something that you can sell and just just make hay when the sun shines, so to speak? It's an outright lie. It's just wrong. It, it sexualizes and objectifies women. And I think at the time I sensed it and I felt really odd about it. And the job was really amazing, don't get me wrong, creatively fascinating. But to be a young working actor at that point in a role like that there are certain things that get asked of you. There are certain labels that get put on you. You get um, put into a certain box. And I didn't have the maturity, I think, at the time to, to realise that I could fight that. Mm. Now, in the 1930s, a machine called the Beauty Micrometer was developed to help identify the areas of a person's face which needed to be enhanced or reduced by makeup. 
The inventor was an entrepreneur by the name of Max Factor. Um, <laughs> so do you think that beauty is something you can measure with a machine? Oh, I think we try. This is the thing, though. We, we somehow have this desire for it, so we try and box it. Into, into whatever we can or, or commodify it and yeah. sell it and use plastic surgery. Like it's, it's this weird desperation we have that somehow beauty leads to something else, that if we are beautiful, we will have satisfaction, we will have love, yeah. we will have success, these things. Um, and, and it sort of gets, um, it's pervasive in a way because it just, it also, we see it happening. Like mm. people do get rewarded for it. Mm. But I just disagree. Something in me is like this got to be, it's like that Leonard Cohen quote, um, about the light getting in in the cracks, you know, that they're just, there has to be truth in, in beauty and brokenness. Mm. It just has to be real. And to there's me. something more as well. Yeah. It leads to something greater. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And now, Anna, there was a time in your life, though, when you would never have thought of the Christian message uh, as beautiful. What did you think of Christianity when you were younger? I mean, my exposure to it had been, you know, secular Catholic. So I'd, I had some exposure to, to mass, um, but only every now and then. And it was, it was easy as a child and moving into adolescence to discard it. And then my worldview was really up for grabs. Mm -hmm. And so I went to um, a completely secular high school that had really fantastic feminist values. Um, but what we did receive was this idea that you have to go for the most intelligent, logical idea. And anything that went into the realm of hopefulness or um, spirituality was really easily dismissed. And so I just, it wasn't even an option at first. Right. And then as I progressed into my own ideas about the world and my experiences of it, I concluded very quickly that Christianity was bigoted and it was just simply a group of people that believed something really outdated and used it to oppress other people. Mm. So why did you think that? It's not as though it's, it's something that I had actively experienced and been oppressed by myself. It's something I believed. I guess I was studying psychology and drama at the time. It was before I went to acting school and so I was involved in a lot with a lot of artists. I was mm -hmm. um, heavily involved in the LGBT community, identified with that myself. And even though I had received no discrimination, no rejection, anything like that, the dissonance I felt, I put down to the fact that a group of people had made a decision for me that it was wrong. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess I inherently judged and rejected that and mm. I was like if there's anybody else that believes differently to me then they just must be wrong yeah. <laughs> that was my that you know yeah. 20 year old logic about it yeah but you were saying basically you thought the church was kind of oppressive and outdated oh absolutely um you wouldn't see me walking in there in a million years apparently yeah well something did change because it didn't take a million years to no. change so what changed I had been exposed to some Christians from a distance and I had never engaged I'd never discussed Christianity with them I just observed it and I used to go around and say I don't judge anyone except for Christians I, I judge <laughs> them and um and yet the Christians that I met did seem incredibly stable and interesting and, and years passed and eventually I, I made a friend. Right. And I mean, and I was really, it was a guy and, and I was really curious about him, but they had, people had said to me. They'd warned you. Yeah, they'd warned me, you know, he's into Jesus, but he never <laughs> brought it up. And this hungry fascination started because he was the most intelligent person I'd ever met. And I started to get quite frustrated that he wasn't talking about it with me. He wasn't anything I expected. And so I... I started to ask questions. What questions did you ask? Well, I, I would firstly, I just little drop little baited 
things where like Easter would come and be like, have a good time with your family. (laughs) (laughs) And he would ignore it. Like he wouldn't engage with it at all. Um, And I'd try and, and he'd just put these other, and I started to get really itchy about it. And we ended up having this big conversation one day. Um, He lived in Melbourne and I lived in Sydney at the time. And um, we met up in Melbourne and we sat in this bar and he essentially, I mean, this is being pretty vulnerable, but he essentially sat me down and was like, I'm not going to date you. So you need to stop trying. Um, (laughs) And I was like, why? And he said, because I'm a Christian, I'm a believer and I have certain beliefs around dating and marriage. And he's like, if you ever want to hear about it sometime, I can explain it, but that's just where it's at. And I sat him down on the spot and was like, I want to talk about it. Admittedly, it was very selfish. It wasn't in order to learn more about him. I thought I, I, by that stage, I had a mix of beliefs, some of the occult, Buddhism, Hinduism, a lot of ideas, and I was really comfortable in those. Um, and I felt like I could convert him. So we had this, but of course in that conversation, he spoke for three hours and I just listened sort of enraptured and he left and I, um, and I didn't know if I'd ever come back to Melbourne. And he said, um, at the time, you know, if you're ever back down here, maybe you could visit church one time. And, um, I was like, no. Um, and I really scoffed. And then two days later I was in Sydney again and, I went to a, a party in a bar, like an industry party, and a woman comes up to me and says, I see you've been hanging out with this friend of mine. Um, and I said, oh, yeah, but he's a Christian. And she just stopped me and just said, oh, well, so am I. And she witnessed to me um, for two hours in this bar. Um, it all happened in bars. And, <laughs> <laughs> and she, she essentially asked me as well what I believed, and she just said, I don't think what we believe is that dissimilar I actually think that if you were to turn up to a church and be in that space that you would actually really love it and so she invited me to church and she Mm. invited me to visit her church and she just and did you go I did um and did you love it well she expressed it in such a way that I had never felt like I was qualified I'd always felt like I was an outsider and she just rather than saying you would be welcome she said you would love it as if like I was already welcome there was no there was no question it actually mattered what I felt about it um so when I went I actually um I walked into the church and had a really profound spiritual encounter um Mm -hmm. I had this physical experience and I had a a vision um and I sort of walked away from that not knowing how to reconcile it and then found out I was moving to Melbourne and I moved down there yeah and so what happened after that? Well, essentially... You read the Gospels or something at one point, didn't you? Well, yeah. So I essentially moved down to Melbourne and the only people I knew were, um, was an atheist friend, um, my, my Christian friend, and a woman who I'd had this on and off relationship with. And so there's these three worlds that I felt really torn between and I, I ended up visiting this, this, the Bible study of this friend and, um, I, and his church, which was a Pentecostal church, and I'd never experienced anything like that in my life. But at the same time, wasn't put off by it. It was just so much bigger, so much deeper than I, than I expected um, or had previously known. And um, I walked away from it and just said, you're going a bit too far with this. You're getting a bit brainwashed. Um, all I need to do is sit down with the Bible. I need to read it for myself and I will prove to myself that it's bigoted and I can move on with my life mm. and we'll just get over this phase. But of course, I um, so I found this Gideon Bible in my hotel room because um, I was there for a job. Um, that, and that was the other miracle. Like all of a sudden I had this job um, that kept me in Melbourne, has kept me in Melbourne since. But I opened the Bible and, and over two weeks I read um, the four Gospels and it, it was just so immediate because the minute I started to read them, and I never had before, I just believed them. And the minute I believed them and I had experienced the person of Jesus for the first time 
and the words that he spoke over me. And having never heard those words before, they were so healing that I, I experienced profound physical and emotional healing over that two weeks. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it was completely devoted. Um, was just and it, in a simple, in a childlike mm. way, but I was just there. So what was beautiful about Jesus? I thought I was going to read about this man that loved Christians. Um, and if I wanted him to love me, I would have to change. But I sat there and I just went, he's my friend. Jesus loves me. And these people that have religious ideas about him have got him wrong because he's, he's for me. He wants to be around me. He doesn't care about any of my crap. He loves me. And I just felt this, this deep ally in him. Um, I didn't understand the cross. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't see the beauty of that yet, although that's something that took time. But all, all I saw was this, this man declaring over me with full freedom that I, that I could be the light of the world, mm. that I was, you know, my body was a temple, that I was blessed um, by him and mm. with him. And that it's the unconditional love. You, you don't find that anywhere else. Mm. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story today, Anna. Uh, we're asking Anna McGann today's big question, what is beautiful about life? And the profound Old Testament wisdom book of Ecclesiastes contains a poem about life where the author states that there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the sun, mm. a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build. So, Anna, do you think this poem is in some ways, beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah. It's what, one of my favourite poems. Yeah, yeah. What res- how do you resonate with it? I probably read this, the book of Ecclesiastes quite early in my walk and I'd heard a lot of people say to me, and I think I mentioned this to you more recently, it's so depressing. We hate this book. <laughs> it just makes me feel awful about life. And yet I guess as somebody that has had to be in an industry where the constant pressure is success of like do more, be more, create more, be original, do all of this stuff. This is just this book to me is such a breath of fresh air and this poem particularly I found to be incredibly releasing. I feel like it gives us all permission to be where we're at and God's grace and God's presence and God's active involvement um, is, is unconditional in that regard. It doesn't, just the understanding that even if my life is in turmoil, God is still present and God is still good, mm. that I draw that from this poem again and mm. again and again. Mm. Mm. Well, the poem goes on and raises, again, some challenging seasons in life. For example, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, and a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. So can there be beauty amidst suffering? I absolutely think so. I think that that I would almost say that suffering is imperative. We need to understand it and experience it to know the fullness of joy and to see the complexity and the beauty of life. I don't think beauty is just happiness or loveliness. Mm -hmm. I I think that it deeply involves adversity and what we go through and how we go through it. Um, And this this poem, the way that it brings the both of the binaries together and, and just gives permission and just says, you have permission to be exactly where you are, but there's going to be a time when you are in another season and you're going to get through to the other side of this. Mm. To me, that that's hope and that's incredibly mm. beautiful. Now, but even in your, your life, a couple of years back, you said you were in a pretty tough place. Mm. So how did the book of Ecclesiastes resonate with you at that time? I, it's a book that I've come back to 
again and again, and I have a little practice with it, where I sit with this poem and I'll just ask God, where am I? Where, because sometimes even when I understand my circumstances, I don't actually know where I'm at. I don't know if I'm okay or not okay. And there have been many, many times where I've been able to go through and and he's just revealed one of them and just said it's the time to scatter stones and we've both known what that's meant and I could make peace with it. Um, and particularly in times of trial, when I just didn't know what to do the next day, you know, when you're mourning or you're really... Um, really struggling to get out of bed just knowing okay what do I have for today what what is my season Mm. today and but where am I going like what can I look forward to what can I reach for I found that this poem has has just brought me back to reality time Mm. and time again but there's hope as well yes Mm. always how do you react when you read what the writer concludes by saying that he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Uh, you had something scrawled in your Bible next to this passage. Maybe, how do you react to that? I love, I just love that part of it because it, it essentially suggests that even the most horrible experience has to have an element of beauty and we will experience it. And we can't avoid it. And there's something inevitable about life. You know, none of us chose to be here. There's something inevitable about a lot of these experiences. And yet there's this promise that at some point we will understand why it's beautiful and why it it, it even could be good. And what I had scrolled, just this little thing that says, wait for him. And it was about a relationship that had broken down. And I had interpreted it at the time wrongfully that, in time I will get the relationship back and everything will be restored and I will be okay and it wasn't until many many years later that I could look back at that and understand that everything was made beautiful and everything was made perfectly as it should be but not in the way that I thought in the way that God makes things beautiful and the sovereignty and the leadership and the the clarity with which God, who's up here, can see my circumstances compared to Anna down here just understanding the wisdom of God um, and how he's crafted my life. Um, I look at that passage and I, I can be reminded of that now. Mm. So Anna, what is beautiful about life? People, consistent people is what I mean by that, having people that I can love, not just my husband, you know, not just my parents, but having my friends and having these people that I can walk alongside. We just remain together and we mm. hold fast no matter where everybody's at. I find mm. that um, one of mm. the most extraordinary things. Mm. And what about the... The God making everything beautiful in its time? I, f- I find it to be a promise. It's not a promise of ease, of complete, immediate healing. It's saying we have this great hope. And I don't think it's necessarily for eternity. I think I think in this life, I think some of these awful experiences, these, these complicated, icky things, or even these glorious experiences, everything is brought back to the to the earth you know everything is brought back down and God can show us what it really is and show us how he has crafted it and moved it and placed us so that there is complete hope and complete beauty there Mm. let me leave you with some of the Bible's comments on the big question what is beautiful about life from Ecclesiastes 3.11 he has made everything beautiful in its time I look forward to you joining us next time for bigger questions please thank our guest today Anna McGann Thanks for listening to Bigger Questions. 
To help you continue exploring the bigger questions, we've developed a reading guide to accompany this episode called Chasing Life. The guide has further questions, stories and reflections to help you understand the book of Ecclesiastes. To get your own copy or to find out more, check out the Bigger Questions website or contact your local City Bible Forum office. If you've enjoyed the show, why not support it on Patreon? You can help us keep asking bigger questions for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash biggerquestions. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us next time.